Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Wadan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Kathleen DeBroda, Director of Horticulture Operations at Aero Farms, a leading indoor vertical farming company. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome back to the Doctor Is In podcast. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Kathleen DeBroda, Director of Horticultural Operations at Aero Farms. Many of you may know or have heard of Aero Farms, which is one of the first commercial vertical farm operations in the U.S., they basically help turn the vision of those towering urban farms into reality way back starting in 2004. Amazing, we're like almost 20 years uh, into the future. They've been making a lot of news lately uh, as they expand locations and crops, including growing hops to brew beer in the UK. Um, Hi, Kathleen, welcome to our podcast. Hello. Nice to be here. It's so great to have you on What Plants Crave. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about you, the plants that you grow at Aero Farms, and the importance of applying research to the practice of growing plants indoors. So to start things off, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into horticulture and controlled environment, agriculture, and and how you found your way to Aero Farms. Sure. Where do I start? I guess I've always really liked plants. Uh, I started out at Indiana University in Bloomington doing my undergrad in biology there. So I thought about doing botany, thought about doing a lot of different stuff, studied abroad in Copenhagen doing sustainable technology and design. Um, So that kind of got me introduced to the topic of controlled environment agriculture. Uh, So then I went on to do my master's at Georgia Tech in environmental engineering. Um, And that I, by then I knew I was already really excited about it, about circular economies and aquaponics. I did my thesis in aquaponics there and sort of roundabout came into it that way, but always excited about it. And ever since I had learned from uh, Dixon Despomier about vertical farming. I was like, wow, this is a really cool topic. So much more efficient, so much opportunity to do a lot of cool farming indoors. And how did you find Aero Farms or how did they find you? Oh man. Well, I had heard about Aero Farms fr- from during my undergraduate t- uh, career even. So I knew Aero Farms, knew about Aero Farms uh, since then, and I was excited that they were, like you said, doing what the, the theory was that you could actually do this and at a large scale and successfully. Yeah, actually making it happen. You know, I, I think early on when I think about 2004, I mean, that's when I was kind of first starting my PhD work and, you know, it was sort of in the realm of the imagination and not necessarily something people were doing at scale, Um, at least here in the U.S., you know, maybe in Japan and parts of Asia, they were starting to build plant factories and, and parts of Europe as well. So it's really exciting that, you know, Aero Farms was able to make that a reality. And, you know, just to sort of, 
I, I just want to give an homage real quick to to Ed uh, Harwood, uh, who I knew pretty well, who is, I would say, you know, considered one of the fathers of the vertical farm industry here in the U.S. and, and a co-founder of Arrow Farms. What kind of legacy has he left at Arrow Farms? And do you think at our industry at large? Yeah, absolutely. Ed, you know, he took that idea and ran with it to the point where he was experimenting in his garage and eventually he he took it to the to where we are now his legacy really i think everyone at arrow farms would agree is just that making it a reality you know taking the steps to not only get the idea for the technology but to take the steps to go and patent it and to, to try to really put it into, into action. So just being curious, exploring new realms, pushing the boundaries of what we can really do, exploring, testing, always just to basically taking a dream and, and making it something real. Yeah, you know, I, I've always appreciated his engagement with the academic community. Um, he was always someone who showed up at an NCERA meeting or at the university and, and always curious about what the latest state-of-the-art research was and sharing also what, what he was doing, what you guys were doing at Arrow Farms. Uh, we're going to talk about some of that later, but, you know, he was always science-focused, right? Like, doing the science and the research and then applying it, which makes it even more exciting to be talking to you coming from R&D. So, so tell me about what your position was and what you're now doing at Aero Farms. Yeah, sure. I started out as a plant scientist in the R&D team here at Aero Farms and then worked my way up through the ranks there. And now I'm doing horticulture. So I've switched over recently from R&D to the operations team. So it's really, it's been interesting getting two different perspectives on the same challenge. And from the R&D perspective, yeah, just staying dialed into what the industry is doing, what's happening in literature, what's happening in LED science, um, a lot of engineering and uh, other interesting papers coming out of, you know, Cornell and um, many other research institutions that are doing a lot of cool work on this and a lot in Asia too, like you mentioned, but, you know, from R and D you're really working on a small fraction of the puzzle at a given time. And now in horticulture, I'm trying to put all those pieces together to say, okay, what does this really end up doing for us? And what can we actually do physically with that information in our farm, like tomorrow, you know? So that is, has been, it's really cool to be able to take that research that we, everything that we've learned in R&D and just say, now we're going to go do it. Like this is, here's what we're going to do next, which is really, really fun. Yeah. I don't think a lot of scientists get the opportunity to actually put their findings into application. Like you've been able to, what, what, tell us, tell our listeners, what does Aero Farms grow? Yeah, we grow um, right now baby leafy greens and microgreens. I'm working on expanding into other things in our R&D team. Um, but right now we, we, we grow uh, many varieties of, of leafy greens. So kale, broccoli, brassicas, generally watercress. Um, microgreens, we grow several different blends and standalone varieties that we just recently commercialized. 
I think the newest one is our micro wasabi, which is very, very spicy wasabi mustard microgreen. Wow. Wasabi is supposed to be one of the hardest plants to grow. You guys are figuring it out. It's, it's wasabi mustard. So it, it's a, a varietal of, of mustard that tastes almost exactly like uh, the horseradish wasabi that you're used to. Yum. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Aero Farms, because maybe there's some people out there who've been living under a rock and don't know Aero <laughs> Farms. Um, can you sort of paint a picture? Like if, if I went and visited an Aero Farms facility, what would I see? Well, if we offered tours, you would, when you walk in, it, it's basically a giant warehouse with plants going all the way up to the ceiling in these tall racks. They are 12 levels high. We've got 14 towers in our current Newark Rome Street facility in the Newark Ironbound neighborhood. And those they're on, lights are on, water's being pumped up to each level. You can hear, you know, mechanical noises and it's nice and warm in that room. So it's a pretty cool walking in the first time. It's pretty cool. I will say though, our new facility is going to be four times larger even than that. It's currently under construction in Danville, Virginia. Wow. You know, are you guys growing under pink lights, you know, when I think about vertical farming and, and you see like some of the images online or that people post, you know, sometimes you see sort of the, the pink light and sometimes it's white light. If you can share, like, are, are you guys a pink light grower or a white light grower or does it depend? Yeah. Yeah. So right now we're a white light grower, but uh, things will be different at Danville. Okay. Okay. So, so what yeah. are the benefits of growing in, in such a space, you know, being in this huge warehouse and 14 levels of these different crops, like why do mm -hmm. this indoors? Well, there's many reasons. So first there's no seasonality and the lighting is always consistent. So you don't need to worry about, oh, there's, there's less light in winter um, or temperature swings or needing to manage that in terms of maintaining your environment. So it's, it's just 24 seven, 365, everything can be controlled to be the same. So you can really dial in exactly what parameters you wanna use and just keep those constant or change them if you wish. But uh, the point is you've got full control. And second, there's no pest pressure or very little pest pressure really, because it's totally closed in. Um, we, we have, you know, you walk in, you have to wash your hands, wear gloves, you have to wear hair nets, face mask, you know, a gown, everything so that we don't bring in any pests or, or anything to the facility. So those are huge benefit. That means we don't need to use any pesticide, herbicide, fungicide ever. So that those are the main benefits, but there's many more. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, being able to, to maintain a, a constant condition or not. I mean, you kind of like veered off like, ah, or we could make a tweak. Mm -hmm. Under what circumstance would you consider making a, a tweak? Is it based on the, the type of plant that you're growing or the age of the plant you're growing? Could be either. It's up to whatever we decide we want to do. We can change sort of, I guess we, we could change it on purpose, for example, uh, and I was going to talk about this later, but we could change it to purposely stress out the plant, for example, if we wanted. So we could make it dark. We could make it 
way too warm or too cool or give them not enough of a, a given nutrient or too much, for example, to try to um, trigger the plant to produce different phytochemicals or nutrients or to turn a different color, for example, uh, which all of which we have done. So you can change the lighting in a, in a controlled environment warehouse, whereas in a greenhouse, that's a little more difficult. Thank you so much for saying that you might actually want to stress a plant. Um, you know, I, I feel like people who are thinking about, you know, fully controlled environment and you mentioned 24 seven, 365 a day, a year, no seasonality, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of people think that, oh, you know, like we want to make the plant as comfortable as possible um, to create a certain level of consistency, right? Like that makes sense for quality control and, and yield control and everything. But you just said, well, maybe we want to purposely stress the plant. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of like, what, is, can you have too happy of a plant? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, that's, it's weird to say happy, but I think, you know, in some ways you can, it, it just depends on what outcome you're looking for and what exact plant you're talking about. And, uh, and so we, and I'm, correct me later if this is not public knowledge, but we did a, a study with FAR, and I don't remember what that stands for now, so I apologize. But um, we did a study where we stressed the plants on purpose for a research project in order to try to influence their vitamin content and their flavors. So then we had a team of trained you know, panelists who were doing tasting panels to try to identify specific flavor notes and heat levels and, and all these things in our greens and you can make a significant impact on those, those characteristics when you purposely stress the plants like this. And so, you know, maybe we don't do that necessarily every day in production, but we can, and we know how, and we, you know, could leverage that at our future farm. So that's just one benefit of that, that specific study. Yeah. I, you know, I remember when I was doing my PhD work, Cherry Kubota with one of her students, I think it was Dr. Min Wu, uh, they were manipulating um, uh, the nutrients in the, in the fertigation system. And I, and I could be wrong also here, but I think it was about EC and mm -hmm. they tested what the lycopene content of the tomatoes were that we were growing um, to try to manipulate, right? One of these environmental variables to achieve a certain outcome. And for tomatoes, it was this vitamin content of, of lycopene. And, and I think it was stressing the plant for it to produce more of that lycopene. Yeah, yeah. I think something similar is what they do in, in Japan in those strawberry greenhouses where they are very cold winter nights, but it really actually boosts the sweetness and flavor of the strawberries. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Like, uh, again, uh, Dr. Kubota, um, you know, she's a proponent of um, having a couple of nights a week where um, you actually have like a zero VPD, like it's a hundred percent humidity because then the plant, it, it encourages the plant to translocate more of those sugars and nutrients to the berries, making them sweeter. So you could call that a stress condition, right? Like the plant can't breathe almost. And so there's nowhere else for those nutrients to go, except, you know, pushing to the edges of that plant. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> 
So, okay. So we talked about happy and stressed plants. What are some of the challenges of growing in one of these spaces? I mean, you mentioned some of the amazing benefits and, and I think it's a lot of why people are growing indoors to create that environment that you want and need for those plants. But what's also challenging about growing in that environment? Hmm. I need to th- I didn't actually think about this one. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Let me think. I mean, because, well, we are limited in that we can't add, there are certain things that we cannot add to our reservoirs that you may be able to use if you were outdoors or in a greenhouse because we market as a ready to eat crop, for example, we cannot okay. add and don't add any sort of, like I said, pesticide for, you know, or any of that. And so there is a risk that should something get into the grow room, that can be a problem. So that would, you know, if we have a, a pathogen outbreak, for example, that could be a problem because we don't have the ability to apply those, you know, preventative or, um, yeah those chemical fixes that you are able to use outdoors, which of course is part of the reason we exist is that people don't want those residues on their produce, but there is some inherent risk in doing that. So you have to be very careful of preventing contamination and making sure things are clean and people are coming in and cleaning their shoes and wearing hairnets and all that. I'm really glad to hear that, that you guys implement those, um, those SOPs of people, being clean, wearing clean clothes and scrubs and hairnets and everything. Um, you know, I always say that people are the vector for pests, not usually, you know, the, the outside, it's what you bring in from the outside, especially if you're fully closed, like where else is it going to come from? Well, the people who are going in and out. Yeah. Yeah. How, I mean, as you've gone from R and D to a more applied science, I guess we could say, what have been sort of the challenges that you've seen there? Like what was really nice about working in R and D in the lab? And now you're like, oh man, this is actually harder to do in practice. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in R and D, there's no pressure to continue to make sure that yields are up and quality is up and everything is getting out the door on time. Whereas you can kill a plant and you're not going to be in trouble. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And the opposite is true in production. So there's much more pressure on, on that side. Um, for sure. So, and the other thing is too, we are trying to make sure that we can meet the customer's demands in terms of we need this amount on this day. So everything has to be on point all the time. So that's a, that's been an adjustment. So in your role, uh, in more of the R and D side of things, what, what exactly, I mean, what were you researching? I mean, were you, were you sort of researching different plant varietals, maybe in response to consumer demands? Were you testing different lighting spectrums or different temperatures? Like what were sort of maybe some of the variables you were playing with? And you don't have to say what the outcomes were, but just giving us an idea of what are the environmental inputs that plants respond to that we should be thinking about. And and maybe there's one that's surprising. Like, you know, for me, I think about temperature and humidity and BPD and airflow, and people think a lot about nutrient levels and recipes, um, lighting recipes, but it, you know, I'm throwing a lot at you right now, but (laughs) is there like maybe something that, that people are underestimating? 
Good questions. The first part of your question of what we were actually looking at, all the things you mentioned, we have studied at one time or another. So for us, we grow as, as sort of like a, a continuous media, I guess you would call it. So our seeds are placed on top of a cloth, a patented cloth that we've developed and uh, the roots grow down through that cloth. So for example, we could test out different types of cloth or different grow medias, uh, seed densities, for example, how many seeds do we want per flat? How far away from each other should they be? And how do we make sure that they're getting deposited like that every time in production, for example? We, we've studied everything from physically stressing the plants to see what happens to their height and their strength to changing the light recipes, changing, you know, like you said, temperatures, humidities, nutrient recipes, fertigation timing schedules, um, all kinds of things. A lot of variables. There are a lot of levers <laughs> to pull, yes. buttons to push, knobs yes. to turn, whatever analogy <laughs> you want to use. <laughs> How do you keep track of all that data? I mean, you have, you have some experience, um, some education in data science. Like, how do you manage so much data and what advice can you give to people who want to experiment in their own farm? I mean, I have, I have a couple of thoughts, but I want to hear from you what you think is important as people do experiments. That's a good question too. Yeah. I, we manage our data with, we've got an IT team who helps us with a lot of it, but we organize it. Uh, the organization of the data is actually critical. Uh, and I've been helping a little bit lately with that on the ops team, just trying to streamline a few things there, but you have to put it, you have to basically keep it all in the same place and think about how you want it to be organized before you start. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble later with trying to reorganize. What does it mean things? to organize data? Yeah. So I guess you have to think about granularity of your, your sensors, for example, um, and, and consider that. You might have one sensor in the middle of the room that you use as your temperature sensor, and you use that as your value. But really, maybe the temperature near the door is cooler and in the back corner is warmer, or for example. And so you got to imagine how much data do I want to collect and what at what granularity level is it going to be most useful, for example. So per flat or per tray of plants that come off the tower, we, we want to know what was the yield, what was the, how was the, you know, size and quality and, and all that, but we don't really need to know the exact temperature and humidity for every single flat, every single space along the tower, for example. So that knowing where to put your sensors, how frequently you want to look at the data from those sensors, and then kind of matching all of that up in a table will first of all help you automatically generate a lot of graphs and insights and things like that but also just keep yourself sane and organized <laughs> yeah you know we we talk to a lot of growers who kind of fall into that trap or, or are tempted to fall into the trap of you know we'll use temperature i i i can talk about temperature all day long who want to you know measure the temperature over every tray or at three points over every tray. And they're like you, right? Like they're 14 <laughs> stacks high and 20 stacks wide. And you're just like, what are you gonna do with that data? <laughs> like, how is that gonna inform mm -hmm. any of your decisions? 
number one. And number two, do you actually expect the HVAC system I designed for you to control to every single tray based on like the deviations? Exactly. Like mm-hmm. there's gotta be a way to narrow this down and figure out like which sensor is gonna produce, right? The, the outcomes, the overall general outcomes for that entire volume of production area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. So the first thing you said is, you know, when, when it comes to evaluating data, number one is organization. Mm. What's number two? Yeah, I think number two is making sure, you know, you have to make sure that you know what to do with it, I guess, and be able to visualize it in a way that is helpful for you. So if you've got a table of numbers, not helpful. If you have a graph, a little more helpful. If that graph has error bars, even more helpful, for example. So having a realistic expectation of, of your data and the amount of granularity you have and the amount of control that you really have, um, and also being able to see that over time or between varieties or between locations in the grow room, for example, being able to just easily toggle between those, those views is, is helpful, at least for me. We, I, in R&D, did a lot of exploratory data analysis where I would simply try to plot one variable against another or two variables, you know, against a a third, for example, and try to just do correlations, a lot of data mining, just to kind of try to see what it was the outcome on yield or quality or temperature or EC, for example, when we made a change to one other variable. And that's, that's the, the key to it is trying to get those correlations, trying to get the you know, the variables to cooperate with you and being able to visualize those, I think is key to that. There are ways to do it without seeing it, but I, I really like doing that. Oh, I know. What is an error bar? <laughs> oh, I just mean being able to see the, the spread of your data. So how, how, what is the distribution of um, the yield data points? Maybe it's a normal distribution when they come out of the of the growing tower, for example, or maybe every single flat has the exact same yield. Amazing. But, you know, they're probably going to have some slight variation and, and being able to see the range of where those are falling. Maybe that range gets wider or smaller when you make a certain change, for example, just, you know, got it. So the goal hopefully would be to have pretty short error, error bars. That's hard Mm -hmm. to say error bars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think you could think of it like a standard deviation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, one thought that comes to my mind, and you just mentioned, you know, like if if you pick a variable and and then you pick another variable, and how does that affect the original variable? One thing that I always think about when it comes to experimentation and what I see people are doing in their in-house farms is they will change four variables at one time, right? And it's like, and then they, they get a great output or they get a crappy output. And, and then it's like, well, which of those variables actually affected the outcome? Did all of them together affect the outcome? Like, what is your advice in mm-hmm. terms of testing uh, variables? Uh, get a grow chamber. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Preferably two. So you can do two side by side. I mean, it's very hard mm. to keep perfect control over if you change one thing, how, by how much did you change it? Maybe you didn't change it by enough to see any impact. Well, that's or maybe point. you changed it so much that things actually got worse. And then you're saying, oh, well, I'm never changing that again. But 
you don't really know that that was the actual outcome. You may have just gone too far, for example. So sure. um, a grow chamber is for sure going to be really more, much more dialed in in terms of doing experiments with those type of things, or at least a, a small system where you can do multiple different replicates next to each other, where you can be sure that you're controlling nine out of 10 variables and the 10th one is the only one you're changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I find difficult too, is that it does, there's also the time factor. So things do matter earlier or later in the growth cycle. And if you change something early, maybe there's no effect. Or if you change it late, maybe there's a huge effect. Right. And yeah, keeping true. that constant the whole time can be a challenge. So that's a really good point. Yeah, I could think of a lot of examples about where it matters in the beginning or it matters at the end, maybe how you give light to a plant. Um, you know, I mean, if, if um, you have a plant that has a vegetative and uh, fruiting and flowering stage, what you do at the beginning of that plant's life versus the end of that plant's life might be different. And do you need to tweak that one variable throughout its entire life cycle? Or are you really just changing it at specific points in its life cycle? Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, that's partly, it's close to what I worked on in my thesis of just of trying to understand those individual variables impacts on how the plants are doing and how they're going to grow and how that impacts the entire just kinetic trajectory of their growth path, which there's, it's like a 20 variable multi-dimensional surface problem that no one in history has answered. And it's very, very challenging. So is AI and machine learning going to like take over our jobs or your job as a data <laughs> scientist and researcher? I doubt it. I doubt it strongly. I think there's always room for the grower in the picture, but you know, there will be, I think some tools that come out of AI and machine learning that can help us to maybe dial in a few things. What do you think that is like creating the organize, doing the organization itself and, and mm. pr producing pretty surface plots that we can just look at at the end. That would be cool. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but well, somebody's got to train it first, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes, for sure. And that's, that's not an easy task. Crap yeah. in is crap out, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I always think you have to know that. what you're looking for before you can tell the computer ah. what to do. That's smart, which is, you know, another follow-up question to that, you know, this whole idea of AI and, and having machine vision and, and camera imaging inside our farms, you know, or, or outside our farms for that matter, right? With, with satellite and Landsat and everything. Do you, do you think that AI or machines will ever take over the grower's job? I don't think so. Not fully. Like I said, I think it'll be it'll be more of just a, a tool to help the grower understand what is happening and be able to respond either more quickly or more effectively or both. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that's true. I, you know, coming from, from agriculture, agricultural engineering specifically, you know, I mean, farming is arguably one of our, our greatest inventions. And I, I kind of don't want to take it away from, from <laughs> us, from the human experience. It just feels non-human or unhuman somehow though. Yeah. I guess we gave the wheel to a machine. So whatever. <laughs> use it as a tool, right? We really exactly. use the wheel as a tool to get from point A to point B or to move water from point A to point B or, or however we're using 
wheels. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about efficiency? How do how do you and Aero Farms um, employ, like what kind of technologies or practices, strategies do you employ to improve efficiency, whatever efficiency means to you? Let's see. So I guess just the, the whole concept of the vertical farm is already an improvement on efficiency over being outdoors in terms of square footage okay. and the number of crop turns you can get per year per square foot. Uh, I don't remember the statistics on it, but we do. I mean, like I said, we can grow all year round. Could be a foot of snow outside. We're still growing happily indoors to our customers who are, again, local. Um, because we are located in Newark, New Jersey, we're right down the street from the distribution centers that service New York City, um, New Jersey. And there's millions and millions of customers there that that are not having to get their lettuce shipped in from California. So, <laughs> right. So, you know, you don't have to spend so much gasoline and so much time in a refrigerated truck coming across yeah. the country, you know, losing your shelf life, losing product quality, losing nutrient content in your plants and all that greenhouse gas emissions of shipping can be drastically reduced for one thing. So I guess in terms of inside the farm, we, we do also like recycle our water. We can um, target the nutrients to exactly what the plants need. So you, you don't have to just broadly apply fertilizer outdoors, which of course creates runoff and pollution problems. So we avoid that. And, you know, we're always trying to do more with less even more, I mean, maybe this is the, the same for all farmers, but, but we're really trying to optimize the process in terms of what resources, packaging, lighting, energy, water, nutrients, everything that we're using just to try to dial it in as close as we can. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of embedded energy in fertilizers that people may not realize. And, and even like thinking about transportation, it's not just about gas miles, but you mentioned, you know, refrigerated trucks and, you know, being an HVAC person, what that means to me is refrigerants, huge global warming impact, not to mention the heat that's generated by those air conditioned trucks, you know, by the reefers uh, releasing that heat uh, to cool the space in between, you know, that storing uh, the, the, the produce, um, you know, there's, and of course water, right? I mean, the fact that we can, we have the opportunity to recycle, reuse the water in, you know, a, a, a circular system as opposed to just a once through pass through a crop. And, and you even mentioned targeted irrigation. I think those, you know, when it comes to agriculture, it's, it's water, right? I mean, I know that there's like this big thing about energy and, you know, like how much energy do vertical farms use, you know, like all these lights and all this air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, honestly, we're going to figure out energy. We're figuring it out, but water, water is, I mean, a limited resource that we are tapping way too quickly and we need solutions like this to, to really conserve the water that we have available to feed 7 billion, 9 billion people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess one other thing that came to mind as you were mentioning that is just the fact that our plants can grow almost twice as quickly too, because they get everything they need right when they need it, right at the root zone. There's no, there's plenty of oxygen 
There's nothing, no pests causing pressure. So it's, it's already just inherently more efficient in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about data and now we just talked about efficiency, but I mean, when you are, um, we talked about data in terms of the research, but in terms of the application and the, and the practice in the farm, why is data important there? So now you're not playing with those variables anymore, right? You've done that in the R and D and now you're in practice When, when you like show up at the farm or the grower shows up at the farm, I mean, what kind of data are you thinking about? Are you looking at? Um, and how is that important to the, the outcome? I mean, are you trying to, what do I want to say? You, you did the R&D and you figured out exactly what variables, what intensities or levels and concentrations that you wanted in the R&D. And now you put it into practice. Is, is it challenging to recreate and simulate what you did at the R&D level now at the application level? I know there, um, there are kind of a few thoughts in there. Yes and but. no. Yeah. I, I would say it's, it's not that it's challenging to recreate. It's, it's just constant monitoring more than anything else. And main, making sure that the data stream, the, the data integrity is there. So you have to, mm. I, I mean, most, I guess, of what we would do in operations would be making sure that those targets are being held where we want them and making sure that the sensors are working to, you know, ensure that, of course, if something goes wrong, you want to catch it right away. And so this, the data at the farm allows for immediate monitoring response and remediation. If there is a challenge or something that goes wrong. What do you mean by constant monitoring? Like, is someone just like constantly staring at a screen or no, are you but, checking in like every few hours or every day? Mm-hmm. We've got systems that will automatically alert us if something is out of range. So we have, uh, like I said, a bunch of sensors all throughout the farm that all send their data to the internet. And the internet is amazing and can tell you as soon as something is, hey, this is wrong. This is outside the range where it's supposed to be. So and, we do obviously- you set the parameters of what that range is? Yeah. So okay. yeah, we can change those. We can change the set point and tell the computer, Hey, we want to make sure, you know, temperature doesn't go outside of this degrees to this degree. Um, and if, if it does, we will know right away. How, how does, so how does that data inform, I mean, specifically a decision that you make? Yeah. yeah so that's, that's a good question. I think where I was going previous with that is we still, we're always sort of learning from every grow that we do. It's, we never just set and forget. We are always looking and monitoring and checking. Like we said, Hey, we had, you know, something really bad happened or really good happened. We want to make sure we capture all the information that came from that. So we can either never do it again or do it every time. Um, so we, I guess it's something I took for granted, but yes, we always are learning from every grow that we do. That's why we have all the sensors. So that brings up a really good question. Cause I mean, you had the R and D you went from R and D and now you're in more application. Does, does the feedback loop go the other direction? Like what has been found on the farm? You're like, Oh, we should test this. And then it goes to R and D. Oh yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. And I'm being in the position that I'm in, it's a unique opportunity because that was my favorite part is just trying to, you know, 
apply these things from what they need, what they needed in operations to say, okay, well, we're having trouble with this. What can you guys do in R&D about it? And sometimes maybe it's like, oh, well, that's something that you guys need to work on yourselves. And maybe it's like a human factor, for example, or so-and-so was out and they were the one who were supposed to blah, blah, blah. But usually there, there, there were many times where we would need a, a different variety, for example, of seed. And because we had trouble sourcing the previous seed that we were getting. So R&D had to say, okay, well, now we're going to go through our program to test or to give uh, give operations, hey, this is the seed that we had ready for you as a backup, for example. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you where you came up with your ideas for research. You know, I mean, we, we talked about, I mean, there's academic research um, and some of the things that come out of that. I mean, do you actually try to recreate some of the academic research in-house to like, you know, sort of pressure test it, stress test it? Like, will that work for what we're doing here? Or, or do you think academic research is academic? Oh, we have for sure recreated stuff we saw in papers. Yeah, we maybe didn't do it the exact same way they did in the in academia, but we have definitely saw seen a paper and gone, that could be something we could try, you know, and tested it Very out. Very cool. Um, and, and, and have you usually come out with the same results? Now that you yeah, got a different twice, result. I'm thinking of two examples where we did. Yeah. And it, I mean, some things are more able to be immediately put into practice than others. So uh, maybe we can't install like a thermocouple or something on the cloth to see the, the heat flux going in. I mean, at one point, oh, come on. lots easy. of things getting yeah crazy. <laughs> um, but no, we've, we have done a lot of very many different things in testing from in, inspired by papers over the years. So have you ever reached out to those researchers and said, Hey, we'd, we'd love for you to like test this at a peer reviewed level or, or if you just, if you got a different result, say like super different result than what you saw in the research and the publication, would you reach out to that research group and say, Hey, you know, like we've got something different, like, can you test this or I don't know, like, do you also communicate the other direction with academia? I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think we have, I believe so. I know that we have worked with university partners, like I said, on the FAR project before Yeah, yeah. where the feedback was in both directions for sure. So we were both working toward the same goal, but it was uh, a joint effort. I'm trying to think of we've certainly helped write grants before cool. with university partners. We've had, I think, a postdoc in Jerry Kubota's lab who worked with us. And uh, I'm trying, yeah, I, I think to answer your question, yes, we have. I wouldn't, I don't know all of the details because we have a sort of separate business development R&D sure, team sure. that works on that. And I was mostly in the commercial side. Okay. I'm just so. thinking in terms of making sure that academic research is actually fulfilling your needs, right? Yes. And I know that for sure we have someone on our, on our team who specifically reaches out and works with industry to, or sorry, works with academia to make sure that sort of the research that they're doing is going to be sort of useful for us in terms of application and it maybe helps answer questions that we have, which would be better suited to an academic lab. 
Yeah, I think that's so important, especially because this is such a new industry. And I feel like academia is sort of trying to catch up. There's, it's so wonderful to see so many new controlled environment ag programs and horticulture programs popping up all over the country at every level, right? From community college through the universities and land grants. Um, And and it just makes me think like, we want to make sure because this is so new, but we, I mean, but we're growing so quickly. This industry is growing so quickly to make sure like, you know, the academics aren't just going off on, on some tangent because it's interesting yeah. scientifically, but are also like, you know, meeting your needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that people are really intrigued by and interested in working with us because we try to, we try to push the cutting edge. I mean, we're building a, a research facility, AgEx in Abu Dhabi right now, specifically for doing all this type of research. And that is partnered, I believe, check me later on this, I partnered with UAE University there. So maybe it's not here in the U.S., but we are for sure doing that. Why, why, why the UAE? Water. And one answer, one word answer is water. I love it. Very cool. (laughs) Yeah. Because they have all the energy in the world, like literally. Right. But (laughs) right. And they're very water stressed. So it's, it makes sense for them for sure. And it's very humid there, like crazy Mm. hot and humid. So also just thinking about where, what type of agriculture are you going to employ? Is it going to be outdoor greenhouse or indoor? If I just think about the climate, it's indoor all the way just to beat Mm -hmm. that, that humidity really. Yeah. And it's a a great place to, to learn more and then be able to apply. Yeah. Anywhere. I, I mean, are you guys trying to grow different crops and do R&D on different crops there to meet the different consumer demands? Um, I recently read an article that, no, I didn't read an article. I talked to Dr. Merle Jensen when I was at the short course, and he said that when he was in Abu Dhabi, that they had no idea what to do with broccoli. <laughs> Not that you're growing broccoli. In, We're in growing broccoli farm. microgreens. Um, <laughs> But yes, we are for sure, to answer your question, looking at different crops for different regions. And yeah, I think that only, that makes perfect sense to do, of course. Why work on something no one wants to eat? (laughs) Yeah, or knows what to do with. Um, Right. But apparently the Middle East really likes arugula. So I think you're in good shape there. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, speaking of different types of crops for different regions, I just have, you know, I know I said this at the beginning about like growing hops and I, I don't know if you were part of that necessarily, but doing the R and D growing hops and then giving it, you know, I guess to a brewery in, in the United Kingdom. And I just made, you know, I was like, Oh, why the UK, you know? And, and I was like, Oh, well beer, of course. Right. Like, (laughs) I mean, is that why, I mean, how did you guys find a partner in, in the UK to use your hops and why not maybe somewhere uh, locally? And you probably don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that. I'm sorry. I I know. I think I heard that it was because they were trying to push the idea of vertical farming or or indoor farming there specifically in the UK, because I guess it's less of a popular thing. Correct me if that's wrong later or cut that out later if that's not right, because <laughs> I'm not sure. I was tangentially involved only with the hops project. I was there seeing the updates and I got to kind of hear about it all the time and see the like the plants 
progress as they were growing, but uh, I wasn't directly involved. So why hops? I mean, why any of these plants? Yeah. So typically vertical farming is best suited for plants that are very delicate, very expensive to grow typically outdoors or very water intense. Um, so watercress being one of them. Microgreens, because they have such a short shelf life, it's best to grow them as close to the consumer as you can. They're, you know, the nutrient levels in them can start to go down quickly. So you want to get them out the door right away. So high value crops that don't grow too tall. So strawberries, blueberries, hops, they do grow tall, but you can trellis them. Like and a tomato plant? Like a tomato, right. Okay. So tomatoes, cucumbers, hot peppers, um, herbs, things that are valued and, and a little either have a challenge with water or how they are responding to pests. I know strawberries typically have quite a lot of pesticides yeah. applied. Yeah. So if people are looking for specifically a high quality product that has a good flavor that they don't need to worry about pesticide um, or herbicide that they want fresh, those are some of the drivers there. There's other things too, you know, economics drives a lot of this, but they can't grow too tall. So they're not going to be growing a tree inside anytime, but. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up some of the vining trellising crops um, because, you know, I traditionally think of those as greenhouse crops and you, you don't see a lot of fully enclosed warehouses growing those plants. And, and maybe it's because, you know, traditionally vertical farm, right. You, you mentioned like it ha- the plants have a low profile and, and you're trying to fill up the full volume of the warehouse. I mean, when it comes to hops with being a trellising crop and growing tall, why, why not just stick with the, the typical low profile plant? For the hops, I think specifically the interest was in the getting the fresh, I think they call them wet hops. Now this is not my area of expertise, but I believe because they are fresh, they have a different flavor profile and also There, the research, this was a research project we did. So that I believe they were looking at what impact different colors of lights or spectrums of, of light exposure would have different warmth and, and cooling periods. What would that would have, what impact that has on the flavor of the hop at the end and how much resin they produce. And so being that I wasn't directly involved in that project, I apologize. I don't have all the information, but I believe that was, you know, one of the many reasons to at least explore this as potential for um, further commercialization. Yeah. I know that there's um, work being done at, I think it's Colorado State on uh, hot production in greenhouses. And there's been some interest at the U of A uh, and maybe some other universities, but it's always been in greenhouses. Um, Yeah. Because I think there's, you know, especially with so many microbreweries and and local Mm -hmm. breweries, you know, they're, dry hops is, is the standard, but I think, like you said, there's different flavor terpene profiles that stick around in the fresh hops mm-hmm. before it gets dried out through the drying process, um, that would allow brewer, brewers to have a unique and different product, but it's the same issue of, of transporting something fresh from point A to point B and keeping Mm -hmm. that, that profile. Right. And doing it off season. Uh, Of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Cause I think most of the hops now is grown in like Oregon and Washington. Mm-hmm. Sacramento is actually a great place to grow hops where we live now used to be like, I guess a huge hop field, like where, where um, CSUS is. And it was taken over by uh, the university and all that farm, <laughs> farmland. Um, but a few local breweries have sort of resurrected that idea of growing hops here. Cause of course, you know, Mediterranean nice. climate, everything's <laughs> great to grow everything, but you all don't live in California. So no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, while we're talking about flavor, I mean, one of the most interesting things I ever learned from Ed was how he, well, I guess. I'll start with how Aero Farms was testing, like really at the consumer level, you know, different flavor profiles of the produce that was growing at Aero Farms. And I remember at one of the NCRA meetings, Ed um, was telling us how he took the test to see if he would be a good uh, taste tester, I guess, flavor profiler or whatever. And he's like, I was horrible at it. Like... Yeah, yeah, it's it's challenging. I mean, did... you don't hear about a lot of of growers doing this. I mean, you guys have an actual program, right? Yeah, so we actually recently did a, another, we had done one in the past, but we did another training with a, a company that specializes in f- training people to really get down to the exact flavor notes. And they give you sort of an example of each flavor note for example, grassy or ozonic or earthy or something. And they literally give you a jar with dirt in it that you smell to get the idea in your head ready of this is what earthy tastes like. And, you know, or not earthy, but this is what earthy, the aroma of, of earthiness is. And this is what umami is or heat or spicy or grassy or these other things. So we recently did that. It was very interesting training. And we evaluated all of our leafy greens and microgreens against those things. And we're continuing to do that now. How can people sign up to be on this like, flavor pa- panel? <laughs> uh, well, we do it internally right now. Okay, okay. It would be super cool to do it with, a, a, you know, volunteers, random volunteers. Do you find that um, even internally at the company that some people like certain flavors more than other flavors? I mean, are you actually sure. ranking it or you just say, are you just saying like, oh, this was spicy or this was earthy or do you actually, is there also an extra question at the end? Did you like it? <laughs> um, it depends on what we're doing. If we do a comparative tasting panel, let's say in R and D, we would do one, something to change some aspect of the growing process. We would maybe compare that against a control and say, well, which one did you like more? But that's less helpful than saying, how sweet was this on a scale of one to 10? And how grassy was this? Or how characteristic of the of arugula, for example, flavor did you think that this was? And, and from those numeric, t- trying to quanti- quantify these things that are very nebulous overall, um, trying to you know a- apply that specific flavor knowledge, remembering the training that we went to, has been helpful in trying to narrow in, okay, this actually helped in the flavor or no one could tell the difference or this made it worse. We shouldn't for sure do that. (laughs) Why is quantification of those variables um, more important than I liked it or didn't like it? Uh, It gives you more to work with and you can see if 
maybe someone hates both, but they hate one less, for example. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully they don't hate it at all, <laughs> but maybe someone likes it. They can't tell the difference until you ask them to specifically think about one flavor note. Like let's say it's sweetness. They'll say, well, if you were just thinking, do I like this or do I not? You might not pick up the, the fact that maybe this one does taste sweeter than the other one. Maybe that's why you like it, for example. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Because I was just thinking about arugula and last, uh, we grow arugula in our little office vertical farm. And it's our favorite thing to grow, um, not just for us, but when we have visitors, we're like, oh, you got to like take a, a piece of this arugula leaf and eat it. And a lot, sometimes people don't even know what arugula is. I always find that interesting, but then they'll, and they'll be like, oh my God, like that's so spicy. We tend to grow really spicy arugula. So mm-hmm. then last summer I was out at Ohio State, uh, Ohio State for the um, Optimia uh, meeting. And uh, Dr. Kubota was talking about trials that they were doing with arugula. And she said that in Ohio, in the Midwest, they don't like spicy arugula. <laughs> so they're actually playing with, right, I think it's EC actually, or no, it's pH, uh, to see how it affects the spiciness of arugula to make it more mild. Because, you know, here in, in, in the West or in the Southwest, you know, we probably really like spicy things, but in the Midwest, maybe not so much. That's interesting. Well, I'm from the Midwest and I like spice, but okay, good. I won't take it personally. <laughs> no, um, but that is, that's really cool. And yeah, that's something that you maybe wouldn't even be able to quantify until you would do a training like this and try to rank something on a scale of one to 10. You, that would be hard. How spicy is this? Like if you had mm-hmm. six types of arugula, you would need some type of benchmark or, or yes. something before you'd be able to really make an informed decision about anything. Absolutely. So that was a a really cool program we did. What's the difference between heat and spice? That, I don't know. Oh, I think, so we did one that was um, like, you know what happens when you eat wasabi or horseradish? So the nose burn pungency. So that we can differentiate from a spice heat, a burn that would be from like a jalapeno, for example. That one we did talk about and our greens tend to have more of the nasal pungency than the burn, but they do have some of both being hmm. from the mustard family. So one of those would be considered heat and one would be spicy, or they're just different levels of heat. She referred to them as different because the nasal pungency was a, a physical factor, not really a flavor or aroma per se. It was more like, uh, she separated it into, into three groups. There was like the physical, the aroma and the taste. So taste would just be your, your typical sweet, salty, sour, umami yeah. bitter, then aroma is most everything else. So grassy, earthy, whatever, all these other n- things that you can sense with your nose. Because you're not going to put you, grass and soil in right, your mouth. <laughs> right. But also just so that, you know, if you plug your nose and you take a bite of something, you're only going to taste the taste. You're not going to smell the aroma, the flavor. For sure. Okay. So then there was the physical one that was sort of the chalky feeling in your mouth when you eat spinach leaves, for example, that, that dry, um, I think it's oxalic acid feeling or the nasal pungency or the burn was another one, but it was sort of like, you feel it in your mouth versus in your, in your nose. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that spicy isn't a flavor. It, it is no. <laughs> actually a, a pain reception, a pain receptor right. that's actually delivering that signal to your brain that this hurts. Um, but people like spicy food, I guess, and they will eat spicy food because they know it's not going to hurt them. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, I'm curious too, like, you know, I just stay on the flavor track for a minute, like even how much different flavors and aromas and physical feelings, how they all even interact together. Right. Like, even if I think about like a strawberry, yes, we, we think about it and we want it to be sweet, but there's also an acidity, right. That pairs with it. Yeah. that actually elevates that sweetness. If it was not acidic at all, we actually might not like it, it would just be sugar. Right. It wouldn't it would have any flat. depth. Right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Very complex. It's, it's not our specialty necessarily, but we have explored that realm more But and it's more so lately. cool that you guys are yeah. doing that. Cause I really don't know of any other growers who are at least going to that level and, and, and yeah. growers, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you are doing that, please let us know. Cause I'm really curious, <laughs> like how many people are taking it to that level of detail. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we call it our flavor spectrum. This is our, the reason for the different colors on all of our packages. For example, our, our wasabi, I believe is like a bright orange, uh, to try to have that color associated with each nice. different flavor. Yeah. Love that. I did not realize that. I'm going to have to look more closely at the packaging you guys use. Can you just send me some in Sacramento so we can do our own flavor (laughs) test here? (laughs) Oh yeah, sure. Talk to marketing about that. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) So, so do you consider, I mean, as we started talking, as I, I did this call, this call to action from other growers, do you consider this industry, this, I mean, at whatever scale you want, you know, is it vertical farming or controlled environment, agriculture, or leafy green growers, whatever scale you want to talk about, do you consider it a collaborative or competitive industry? I think just right now, because it's an actively, it's growing, not pun intended, uh, you know, it's a growing industry. So we each kind of have our own proprietary information right now, and that's normal, I'd say, but we do collaborate on the why behind things and sort of things that will benefit all of us. So whether it's like a a government initiative um, or a, for example, the CEA grown food safety standards, I know for sure many, many of us are collaborating. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So, so things you can do at the industry scale to move the Move everyone forward. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I get that. For those who want to get into this industry, what advice do you have for them? I mean, you took such an interesting track and, and you kind of traveled around the country or at least the, <laughs> the, uh, on the other side of the Rocky mountains. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I mean, it's interesting how you got to where you are. What advice do you give to other people who want to get into this industry? Yeah, I, I definitely would say that if there isn't a, a program, if you're in school, if there isn't a program specifically tailored toward this and you're really interested in getting into this, I would say don't hesitate to kind of try to diversify even just the classes that you take. So I, I had to make my own individualized major, which is something that Indiana University offers. I did that as my second major, but 
even if that hadn't been a possibility, I still was able to go study abroad and I could choose what I studied there. I would say, you know, I found my way into it from the engineering, environmental engineering and data science route, but there are many ways you can get involved. And I think if you have, where there's a will, there's a way to, to say it in a kind of trite way, but if you, if we see someone, you know, on the resume who, who has had experience with plants, hands-on experience or, or what have you, if you're passionate about it and you've got some applicable skill, then, then you can certainly get involved in the, in the sphere. So anyone from HVAC engineering to chemical engineering, even, or maybe obviously mechanical engineering, tons of different, pretty much anyone in engineering, probably even software engineering could get involved. Then of course, everyone on the business and marketing side, there's probably something for everyone uh, there. So data science, data analytics, visualization, biology, botany, horticulture, a lot of different hard sciences are probably applicable. So when in doubt, STEM forever. (laughs) Yes, yes. And thank you actually for listing all the different possibilities um, of how you could be involved in this industry other than just being a grower or, you know, being in in a role such as yourself. Uh, That is something in general that I love about agriculture is that it is so collaborative in terms of all the different resources and all the different knowledge sources that you need to actually grow a plant Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then get it to the consumer and then do it again, right? Like repeat, uh, rinse and repeat. um, And and just how much engineering and science has been built up specifically Mm -hmm. around agriculture, um, including multiple engineering disciplines, uh, everything even from mechanical engineering in the water wheel, just to bring that back home, right? I mean, (laughs) water from the river over there to your field over here. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's yeah. mechanical engineering and, and built out of necessity. Um, Absolutely. I, I love agriculture, which is why I don't want to take it away from us. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do? <laughs> How do you predict this industry is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years? I think it's going to expand. Hopefully we're going to probably see more things being done at scale. And I think economies of scale are going to come into play, which is going to be very helpful for, for everyone. It's going to make everything easier. Uh, the cheaper that things are to build and, and maintain, I think we'll see more crop varieties getting kind of to the next level of, Hey, we can actually grow this regularly in a, in a vertical farm, uh, on a large scale. So I think we'll start to see more berries, more cucumbers and peppers and a lot, a lot more diversity, I think, is what we'll start to see as, as things get easier uh, and cheaper to do. We'll probably see more and more types of crops that have been grown in a, not just in a greenhouse, but in a vertical farm. I mean, what um, is the right scale for an indoor farm or a vertical farm? I mean, you know, we, we make the claim that, oh, we're, we're growing more on less land, right? Um, but everyone's scaling up anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah. is there a limit to when that is no longer an argument we can make? That's a good question. I mean, I think that if you're stacking up, you could probably still have a, a very large surface area or sort of footprint and still be 
however many levels you are, multiply your footprint by that to get, you know, a multiplier on your efficiency. So I would say it's probably similar to any factory where you pay once to build it. And then once you've built it, you can, you know, return that investment for a very long time and, and to a larger audience, or in this case, customer base, um, if you've built it right the first time, large enough the first time. Yeah. Do so. you ever, do you ever see these farms? I mean, just thinking about the scale at which we're kind of moving in the direction of, um, I mean, your, your experience with aquaponics, you know, there, there are other agricultural, um, sort of practices, you know, whether it's aquaculture or animal culture or mushroom production. Do you ever see these kind of interacting together at, at scale? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's what I worked on for my thesis. So I do hope to see it come to fruition in, uh, in the future. I think it's still quite difficult to do it because it's a balancing act really, really between inputs from one and outputs from the other. And what do you do with any that's left over or if you don't have enough, for example, of one um, as a feedstock for the next. But I do think we'll start to see more of that because those things just make sense from an efficiency standpoint. It could be just, and this is this is partly what I studied at, at Georgia Tech, is this whole circular economy, which there are some medium scale tests of that are working very well already in place in, in Europe, um, but it's very hard to do at a large scale just because the, of the amount of collaboration and, uh, and working together that would be required. So, what in, in your mind, what's medium versus large scale? I think the one that I'm referring to, I don't remember if it's in Sweden or, or Denmark, I believe it's in Denmark where they, it's more on an industrial scale. So it's not, it's not a, um, a farming application, but it's more of a, a circular economy where there's a series of industries for, for whom one's waste is the next input, for example. Yes. And I think it's something to do with maybe a paper mill. I, I don't remember really, so I apologize, but the, the, you know, wastewater from one can power the generator for the next that can provide a CO2 source for the third or a steam or, or something like that, where you start to get this, um, ecosystem really, um, and you can, why not apply that to CEA where you've got all these different nutrient rich wastes, for example, coming out of aquaculture that are already just pretty much ready to go for plant fertilizer. Maybe a few tweaks required, maybe filtration, maybe not. And depending on what you're doing, you could feed an acre of crops with that, or you could feed on a whole vertical farm from, from your aquaculture operation. The challenge is scaling one piece to the next and co-locating them together. Yeah. Because if you don't do that, then you're then you're dealing with piping or lagoons or trucks or weird challenges with how far away do you gather this nutrient source from and, and how do you transform it in a way that uh, makes sense to, to keep everyone happy. So it's definitely a challenge, but I think it's a, a challenge that's worthwhile. To work on. And that's what we're, that's what I was working on at Georgia Tech. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, that would, for me, when I was doing my PhD, one of the dreams I had was, you know, integrating CEA with commercial buildings, you know, thinking, oh, here's, mm -hmm. here's people, 
who are in you know big office building and they're generating a lot of co2 and and heat and moisture and what if we just took vented that air that's already at 75 degrees and you know and an elevated humidity and i was you know studying at arizona so humidity was the opposite of probably what you deal with in an indoor farm <laughs> um you know, but but this idea of, oh, could we capture that CO2, right, that exhaust air, and rather than exhausting it out into the atmosphere, could we exhaust it into a greenhouse or, or other exactly. plant production system to just kind of close that loop a little bit, just find another use for yeah, what we exactly. would normally consider a waste stream. It actually could be an input stream to, to a plant or, yeah. 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 And that brings, that's another, that's a good point because I, I even considered going into architecture because there are so many ways you can incorporate growing plants in buildings or on buildings that could be really efficient uses of space. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something for everyone. I know. I know. And that's <laughs> actually, all, you know, I mean, one of the yeah. reasons why I went off and got a real job after getting my <laughs> PhD is I was like, you know, we have these ideas. Like, I want to know, is this actually like doable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's like doubly exciting to talk to you, like spending so much time in R and D and doing the science and the research behind the scenes and then getting to apply that, um, in your own real world. Um, yeah. I think that's pretty cool. It's been a great opportunity. That's so cool. What is next for Aero Farms in general? I mean, you've mentioned the R and D facility in Abu Dhabi. You mentioned yeah. briefly about Danville. Um, you're clearly expanding. I mentioned crops and, and locations. Um, what are you guys doing next? What 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 can we look forward to? Yeah, Danville for sure is what's coming in the most near, near term. That is going to be a huge facility four times as large. We are actively hiring. Please check out our website uh, for that if you're interested in getting involved. Um, But we've made so many improvements to our existing technology, the way that we grow, our automation uh, since the Newark facility, which is our current one, that Danville is really occupying a lot of everyone's time because everyone's really excited about getting that all installed. We're under active construction right now. So watching the towers go up and um, things are starting to happen over there. So that's what's coming in the nearest term. We're working on a, the next farm is going to be somewhere in the St. Louis region. So I, I don't know exactly where, but towards the Midwest, um, you better do those flavor tests there. <laughs> there we go. That There we go. See what the people want in St. Louis. So Danville is in what state? Virginia. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Got it. If I may ask, I mean, were there things that you've learned from the, the New York facility that you're applying or, or, or not applying, um, at the Danville facility? Like, yeah. I, I mean, other than like scaling, right. Cause that's gotta be a challenge in and of itself, but are there things that you're planning to do exactly the same or very differently in this new facility? If you're able to share absolutely. Any of those things? I don't know how much I can share in terms of details, but yes, we've, we have learned a lot. We have kept a lot and, and revamped quite a lot since, uh, since the Newark facility was built. We've had several years. I, I don't remember when the, the Danville or sorry, when the Newark facility was built, but we've had several years now to learn from what we built the first time 
and improve upon it. Engineering mostly has been working on that, but you know, we've learned a lot about how to fine tune our environment, how to, what crops we want to grow, which varieties we like the best, how to, what customers are, are, you know, liking and not liking. And so we've, we've got a lot of experience now under our belt for when we go to Danville. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Not a lot of people get the opportunity to expand into new locations. And I mean, just the evolution of Aero Farm starting in the garage and then, you know, growing into, you know, bigger and bigger spaces, having a dedicated R&D space, a new, larger, dedicated R&D facility in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. It's it's exciting to see how Aero Farms has grown and um, sort of built off of, you know, the, the foundation of science and, uh, and technology and I don't know, just just growing it from there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, it's really exciting how far we've come, even just in the three and a half years that, that I've been working at AeroFarms. Um, we had a trailer in a parking lot and, uh, now we're going to have a huge, I think 160 some thousand square foot farm in Virginia. So congratulations. It's incredible. I can't Thank wait you. to see it. Hopefully I'll, I can get a tour yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I promise I'll scrub up. I won't go to another <laughs> facility ahead of time. I'll put on blinders where you want me to. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, last question for you. What do plants crave? I think to answer that, I, my first thing that came, comes to mind is balance. And I think everything needs, I mean, in all areas, consistency, but also just balance of the amount of water, the amount of light, the amount of nutrients, the amount of wind, everything. If, if one thing is like extreme, no one's going to be happy, uh, unless you're doing it on purpose. But, but I think that's what I would say in a, in, in a succinct way, just balance. I like that. I like that. That's a good answer. Okay. So I always end uh, my podcast with some rapid fire questions. They are <laughs> easy. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. No. One sentence, two set. You can go be, you know, as, as um, I don't know, go into as much depth as you want, but really they're meant to be like just quick response, one or two sentences. All right. Okay. Are plants introverts or extroverts? Introverts. <laughs> why gosh I feel like they they tell you when they're sad or when they're they're happy but you have to know what to look for Ooh, ooh! so they're like Scorpios <laughs> <laughs> I guess so I'm not a follower of of horoscopes but uh <laughs> <laughs> now you will look that up oh um, my gosh <laughs> Can indoor farming feed the world? I think so. I think so. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever gotten about growing plants? Oh my gosh. That I, that is a hard question. The best advice you mean like in vertical farming or just farming, any, anything, huh? I guess like don't over pamper them. I mean, hmm, that's a good one. At least I'm thinking now about, I'm looking at house plants next to me, but I, 
every time that people are like, how do you get your houseplants to grow so well? I'm just like, I water them like once a month. I don't even really pay attention. You know what I mean? But of course that's not the same for our plants at, at the farm. We, we monitor them closely, but I don't think we, you know, cater to their every need every day. <laughs> I like that. You know, a lot of our guests have, have talked about um, the dangers of overwatering. For uh, sure. Especially yes. house plants. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what I tell everyone who's like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? And I'm like, just don't water it. <laughs> you think don't people like water so much because it's like the one thing they feel like they can do for a plant. They want to, they want to be as, as nice as they can to the plant, not realizing that that's actually going to make a, a negative impact. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. I'm going to turn that question on its heel. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Or that you've ever heard someone give it. Maybe it wasn't even directed towards you. That's a hard one. I may not, may not have a quick answer to that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's good though. I will say if you've never yeah. gotten any bad advice or heard. Oh, I'm sure advice. I have. I'm sure I have. I guess, I guess I would say the, well, it's not really advice. Just like expecting that. I mean, each plant is going to be different. Even if it's the same seed from the same plant, the two seeds could be different. They could grow into a different plant. And so just having the, I guess a bad mentality would be just expecting it to always grow exactly the same way mm. and kind of not, you know, honoring the fact that there's always diversity and variance in nature. That's a but, good one. On that note, real quickly, have you ever had an outcome that, you know, like from the diversity of that plant or maybe something went wrong in the facility. Have you ever had a serendipitous moment where you're like, oh, I'm so glad that we screwed this up, or I'm so glad that this plant was different than the, what we expected that turned into a, a positive? For sure. Yeah, we cool. have. Things go unexpectedly sometimes and you go, oh, that actually kind of was worked out, <laughs> you know? Nice. I feel like when you were talking earlier about like the timing of when you might like tweak a variable, that that mm -hmm. could be a serendipitous moment is if you did something too soon or you forgot to do something and you did it too late and you're like, oh, like that was an amazing outcome. I'm going to do that every <laughs> time again. Yes. Or even something that wasn't a negative outcome. Yeah. Uh, would be a big, and, and especially if, you know, it saves you power or time or energy, you're like, oh, well, okay, maybe we don't need to do that. That's um, awesome. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So last question, there's like three <laughs> ways I want to ask this question. So I haven't quite figured it out. I almost want to ask all three in succession <laughs> and then let you choose which question you want to answer. Okay. Here are the three questions. What is your favorite plant to grow? Hmm. Okay, number two. If you could combine the flavor profiles of any two plants that you guys grow at Aero Farms, what would they be? Okay, number three. What is the most interesting or unique tasting plant you've grown? You could answer okay. them all. Clarification, if you want. clarification for three that I've ever grown in the farm or like at aero farms or like in general? Hmm. I would say in general, okay. but if, if you uh, have to say it about aero farms, then you can't. <laughs> um, okay. Well, those are all good questions. I think my favorite plant to grow at aero farms is 
It's, I mean, probably the microgreens. I really like our microgreens. They're my favorite from a flavor perspective because they're very delicate, but they're, you don't have to cut them up and they're really small, easy to eat. And they're just very tasty and flavorful too. I, I like them quite a bit. And I think they're really cute when they grow because they're this whole like dense carpet that we grow of, yeah. of microgreens. So I think those might be my favorite to grow at Air Farms. For combining flavors, maybe the watercress with the kale would be really good. Whoa. Our kale is very, yeah, the, the kale is very, it's a little bit sweet and delicate, but also earthy and like kind of well-rounded, you know, kale, how kale tastes. It's, it's very balanced, I think, but a watercress has more of like a pepperiness to it, a little more crunch. Those are probably, I'm biased because those are probably my two favorite ones of the baby greens that we grow. So that would be cool. And then, I asked uh, you your favorite. So that was perfect. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, unique. I managed the, uh, the campus garden at Indiana University. So while I was there, we grew golden raspberries, which were fantastic. And they were very, very sweet and delicious. And of course, raspberries are my favorite fruit. So good. To know. Yeah. And they were, they were amazing. What, what's different about a golden raspberry versus a red raspberry? I don't know, but I liked it, but they're good. <laughs> okay. I don't, are they more delicate? Do you think, is that why we don't, they see might them? be, they may be an heirloom variety, for example, okay. which could be why we don't see them. Yeah. But they're kind of, you know, those white strawberries, the, yep. forget what they call them, pink berries or something. It's, it's similar to that where that you're like, oh, it's not right. But then you, you're like, wait a minute, you know, it's this like delicious, juicy raspberry. So nice. So are we going to see arrow farms growing raspberries? You know, I'd love that. I don't know. We'll see. Let's talk to ag X, get them growing some raspberries. Right. <laughs> I mean, they got the person who can like do the taste testing for them. <laughs> I would sign up for that so quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I have to, awesome. I've got to make some calls actually on that. Um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> we found your next, uh, next step <laughs> in the company there. <laughs> yeah. Write the R&D program for growing golden raspberries. Well, uh, Kathleen, it was so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for being yeah. a guest. It was really nice talking, talking to you and, and someone from Aero Farms. You guys have just done so much for this industry in general. And I'm really proud to, to be associated with you. Thank you. Really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks everyone. This was What Plants Crave with Kathleen DeBroda and um, we'll talk next time. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Kathleen DeBroda, Director of Horticulture Operations at Arrow Farms for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our interview with Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. Tad is co-founder of Kiss Organics and host of the Kiss Organics podcast called Cannabis Cultivation and Science. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. And thank you for growing with us.